Hello and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. This episode is all about politics. We have two guests for you. Patrick Coleman, who's Fatherly's own parenting expert. He's going to give us a historical view of what it's been like to raise a family in America. Our second guest is Domenico Montanaro. He's NPR's political editor based down in D.C. And Domenico is going to talk to us about the 2020 field and how we're living through an insane time for father-son dynamics. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Hey, Patrick. It's Joshua. How you doing? Hey, I'm all right. You're, What's going on? You're living the life. <laughs> yeah. You live the life you write about. <laughs> I do. Yes, I do. Um, I wanted to talk about parenting in the United States and the challenges that parents face and get a little bit of a historical perspective on where we sit today versus maybe where we sat 50, 60 years ago. I love it. Let's do it. Okay. So I know that, for instance, we're in economically challenging times. A lot of parents are feeling the crush. And at the same time, the financial burden of parenting is increasing. Can you tell me a little bit about how how it has increased and where we are um, today? Yeah, uh, I sure can. I mean, you know, we like to look back um, at this sort of golden golden age of parenting. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily it's not like necessarily defined, you know. But in pop culture, you know, it's like the the I love Lucy days and the father knows best days and, you know, um, all of those black and white sitcoms that are like, oh, yeah, that's the perfect nuclear family. Well, the thing is, like, those parents were um, – they were, they were much better off in terms of, of the types of resources they had available to them. And these are post-war years um, after World War II and – the the economy was was booming. I mean, it was it was really incredible for parents because first of all, you had the GI Bill. You had a lot of uh, you had a lot of men coming back from World War II who were taking advantage of the GI Bill, and um, that allowed them to get an education, which would allow them to get a good job. Industry was thriving because all of the innovations that that uh, had occurred. During World War II, whether it was the uh, development of vinyl siding, for instance, you know, all of these or computers, you know, like these things were being given to industry, and industry was booming based on those innovations. They were just given from the government to industry for free. So you're so basically only- saying, though, that it wasn't so much that parenting was easier, but that the overall economic situation was much rosier and that meant that it was easier to be a parent yes yes but also i mean we we have to we have to understand like like that is the government subsidizing families that is the government subsidizing a baby boom the baby boom could not have happened without the gi bill without giving companies uh, the innovations that it would allow for one salary to be able to pay not only for the work that was happening uh, in the factory or the business place, but also the work that was happening at home. Like it was, it was this era of the of the single wage job. Yeah. Um, 
that's a very sexist idea because the person who was earning that single wage was assumed to be the man. Um, and that wasn't great. I mean, none of us want to return to that, but, <laughs> but it was assumed. Um, and Although single wage households don't definitionally mean the man is working outside of the house. Right. Could be the other way around. Right. Um, back, back in this time, it was, it was, it was usually, I mean, you're right. We would like to have a single wage household and it would be best. I mean, there's people who, who are proposing um, that uh, the, the return to single wage jobs, but they would be, it would be wages that, that would allow parents to split up the week 20 hours by 20 hours. It's a crazy idea. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it's particularly tenable, but you know, um, that would be a more fair way to do it. Yeah, but when you talk about the, the economic conditions, right? So we had jobs, we had um, good jobs, we had the ability to get training for the jobs, um, and because of that, um, income inequality was 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 tiny. I mean, the income inequality back then was um, was very was very narrow. So um, Paul Krugman, the economist, calls this the Great Compression. Um, and the the difference between the lowest waging and or the lowest wage earners and the highest wage earners at that time was was tiny. It it, it kind of is closer to um, like uh, like Western European and Northwestern European countries right. uh, today. Um, and when did allowed, it all go to shit? It went to shit in the seventies. Oh, great, <laughs> just in time for me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so globalization came along. Um, there were really crappy tax policies that um, made the uh, uh, made the tax structure less progressive, um, which meant that people had more were actually paying less than they were before. Um, that put more of a burden on the middle class and um, the rise of neoliberalism. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And you know, as as that came around, um, you know, industry started to to take a dive, um, particularly in manufacturing, and that meant like your kid couldn't just get a job out of high school anymore. They couldn't go and 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 get a public school education uh, and and do some work in shop class. And, uh, and and take some of those courses and then immediately get a good union uh, factory job or a manufacturing gig that paid really well um, and then and that had you know good growth. They couldn't do that anymore. So suddenly the only path towards success began to be um, a college degree. And as the inequality between the rich and the poor began to increase, the middle class began to see that, like, the only way my kid is going to be able to make it in this world is if I get them into into a good college. And that makes it much, much more stressful. Uh, right. For- it, and I, I assume it was also dovetailing with a decreased uh, government support for higher education. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Back in the day, uh, government was not only supporting college education; like they were buying into major, um, they were giving major grants to uh, to research universities. 
you know, they were because they were looking to spawn innovation and they were funding innovation. And so that, it just that, this that, all makes me think about um, well, two things. One, it makes me think of something you bring in the bring up in the beginning of a wonderful article you wrote, which I think is called like the middle class is drowning, mm-hmm. eye catching. Um, about the idea that the fact that parents are paying more and more money uh, for their kid, that they're devoting more resources and more uncompensated um, labor, sort of, uh, is is due to an underlying insecurity about class, meaning that like it's not assured their kids are going to move up the socioeconomic ladder. And that is a real indicator of a general movement of more um, kind of coalesced, uh, class st- strictures in society. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, by the time um, Gen X came around, the, the, the lost Gen X that nobody likes to talk about anymore, because we're so quiet, um, <laughs> we just sit quietly in our homes and complain. Um, you know, by the time Gen X came around, we were one of the first generations where we were going, uh, I don't think I'm going to be better off than my parents. And our yeah. parents were looking at us going, they're not going to be better off than me. Um, and and really then, you know, when it comes to Gen Y and the millennials, like they really are looking at this reality, uh, at this reality where they're not going to be better off than the parents. Yeah. The parents understand this. So, so yeah, they do have to push. They do have to push. They do, they do have to spend all of this time and money and overschool their child and 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 work so hard with them to make sure that they get an edge, you know, because that little edge might be the thing that allows them to get into, you know, a competitive college and get a high pay and get a degree that allows them um, to have a high paying job. Because the fact is now, like college people who come out with a college degree, even a bachelor's degree, earn something like like well over 160% of, of what someone earns just coming out of high school right. without a college degree. And I think, I, think it's actually, I think it's actually quite a bit more than that. But, you know, the fact is, like, when you look at that, it, it, there really, there's really no other option. You know? we well, this have- it goes back to the um, two-income trap, which is something that is very present in the 2020 race, especially with Elizabeth Warren, the two-income household means that for, for middle-class families to be able to afford the opportunities that they need in order to give their kid a fighting chance, they both have to work full-time. Meanwhile, all you know, you and I see research all the time that increased parental involvement, like not just paying for opportunities, but being around, is also extremely beneficial. It's just a very hard time to be a parent. So looking forward to 2020, where we're going to be making a choice between candidates, what policies do you think that we should be looking at as parents to help alleviate our situation? I think there are a couple of policies um, on uh, uh, that are being proposed that actually look really good, like uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, policy for child care, um, Universal child care looks really good. I mean, that would take a tremendous burden um, off of off of parents. Um, what I like about that proposal is it is targeted towards child rearing, whereas a lot of the underlying conditions which make parenting so hard is such a broad, fundamental 
shift in our culture and society that I feel very cynical that that will ever happen. But by targeting childcare, you, it's a much more doable policy, you know, much more actionable. Right. Like what you, you know, said, those manufacturing jobs aren't going to come back. Like we're not going to return to a post-war boom. As, you know, hopefully we don't have another war to return to a post-war boom after. Um, but yeah. by targeting childcare, it's like okay, maybe we can break this cycle. Yeah, for sure. It 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 really, it really really helps. There are also policies, of course, for um, for healthcare for. Um, uh, having having single payer systems or Medicare for all, that would help a lot, because six percent of what we spend to raise children is is dedicated to their health care. You know, it costs the the USDA estimates uh, say two hundred thirty three thousand dollars to raise a kid up until the age of eighteen, and six percent of that cost is is health care. Right. And that's that's astounding. And taking that off, I mean, that's a good chunk of change. Um, if, if you can if you can get a good system, and uh, this is something that every American wants, and it doesn't just help parents; it helps everyone. Um, there's, yeah, uh, I mean, it does seem like the increased partisanship about child about sorry about healthcare doesn't really serve our children. Right. Absolutely. Um, Cory Booker has a uh, has a proposal for a, a baby bond. Um, which would issue uh, every child um, a U.S. bond uh, at their at their birth. I can't remember for how much, um, but as this matures over their life, they have a nice chunk of change when they uh, come of age to be able to you know pay for college or or look at buying a house. Um, you know that would take some of the anxiety off because all of a sudden you know you're like okay well that's that's one thing as a parent that I don't have to worry about that, I mean that's a huge a huge source of anxiety guaranteed um, uh, income yeah yeah absolutely universal uh, basic basic income yeah universal basic income what's what's interesting about that is that um, there there are countries uh, like you know the the the, ba- the the best places for parents to be. Whoa, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so like the countries, the best countries for parents to be right now are like uh, you know are are the Scandinavian countries, your Finlands, your Germanys, your Sweden. You know ways, your Swedens. <laughs> In Finland, parents are guaranteed two hundred to three hundred dollars per child yeah. to, to raise their children per month. Um, per month. Sounds a lot like socialism. It is. I mean, it is. Say the word. (laughs) It's it's socialism. It's democratic (laughs) socialism. Yay! Feel the burn. (laughs) And you know, I wish we weren't so frightened of it. I I, I don't know why people are so frightened of it. Um, Because it's not that you're getting a handout. I mean, you're paying for this stuff. Well, Um, a handout's a really funny. it just occurs to me that handout's a really funny thing because handout kind of implies that it's one entity giving it to another entity, right? But if we right. all conceive of ourselves as part of one common project, it's like the left hand giving to the right hand, you know? Right. It's, exactly. it, you're part of the body politic. So let me let me lay something on you. I want to see what you think about this. Lay it on me. Um, <laughs> 
so like, like I was a hamburger <laughs> patty and you were a slice of cheese. <laughs> so the, <laughs> that's a beautiful image that I'm going to cherish <laughs> and keep in my mind forever. Um, <laughs> there, you know, when you talk to um, uh, uh, when you when you talk to to scientists who who look at parenting, they will tell you tell you that the way we're raising kids today is untested in the arc of of human evolution. This 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 idea of raising children alone by ourselves in our in our little boxes, never the way we did it for the the majority of of human history. I mean, this this little slice that we're in right now is something completely new. Up until the agricultural revolutions, we were raising children in in communities, in tight communities, where everybody had a stake in that child because that child would give back to the community. That's how humans raised children. That's how we evolved for most of our history. And now here we are. And in, in America, we're very individualistic. We're, we, we have to go it alone. But, and, and, you know, I feel like, I feel like since we've lost that tribe that, that we used to have, I, I don't understand what's necessarily wrong with, with, you know, creating sort of a, a government-mandated tribe. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm going to stop you with government-mandated <laughs> tribe. No, you can't have the government fix. Government is the problem, Patrick. That's not true. I don't think government is a problem, but I also don't think that you can have the government mandate any sort of social tribe. What they can do, which I think is what you actually mean, is help create the underlying conditions which allow the natural sense of community between families and in areas to really take root. Whereas really what I, really what I think has happened is that there have been underlying economic policies which have isolated families and isolated individuals to think that it's the system is a zero-sum game. Right? It's, that's, that's, yeah, that's that's why you're a better uh, writer than me. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. But we both vote for the same person. <laughs> okay, Patrick, um, thank you for giving me a primer, giving us a primer. Uh, it's soul-crushing, but informative, and hopefully we'll change it. You and me, man. You and me together. We can change this. Turn it around. Yeah. I think I think we can. It can it can be fixed. I'm I'm certain it can be fixed. We just have to see enough Felicity Huffman's to go to jail to realize that something's <laughs> fucked up and we need to change it. And out of the blue, here she comes. Okay, thanks, Patrick. Talk to you later. All right, thanks. I'm Domenico Montanaro. I'm the political editor at NPR, and it makes a lot of sense because I'm actually home today with my daughter because she has off from school for kindergarten orientation. <laughs> How can she be oriented if she's at home? Well, it's not about her. It's about the other kids. So there's like pre- pre-K kids, I guess, coming in with their parents to check out the school. So all the kindergartners have off. I oh. don't get it. Oh, I see. That's what it is. They're, yeah. pitching. They're pitching the school and they can't have kids right. in the school while they pitch it. Why would you want that? No, because then otherwise all of the beautiful Montessori wooden toys would be obscured. Well, this is public school. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to assume. 
<laughs> no wooden toys. No, only plastic and lead made from <laughs> yeah. solely. Uh, um, well, hopefully she'll make a, uh, you know, she's welcome to come on to the podcast and add her insight to the 2020 field. <laughs> she has thoughts. She has lots of thoughts. She always has lots of thoughts. Does she, does she, does she have thoughts about the Democratic primary field? I don't know if she has thoughts about the field. She certainly has thoughts about the incumbent president. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Um, let's see, my kids, yeah, so I have a five and seven-year-old, and I think my seven-year-old calls him... Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is even for the podcast. I live in Brooklyn, right. like solidly, uh, okay. solidly blue. Yeah. yeah. And there's like a weird um, dynamic that happens at school. They're five and seven. Uh, so they're in um, kindergarten, second grade. Uh, um, that like parents take a lot of pride in how much disgust their children manifest for Donald Trump. Oh, okay. You, you know what I mean? So like if you're in yeah. the coffee shop and... Um, which I'm always in, and a kid yeah. and a kid says something like, you know, the orange one in the White House, and everyone like titters oh, and they're very excited about it. But yeah, mine aren't that outward about it. You know, they're nine and six. They just, um, I just remember during the campaign, you know, I didn't really, I don't really talk about politics much at home. I just kind of, you know, let it be, and they they kind of hear what I say on the radio and stuff like that. But um, there were a couple moments during the campaign with things that. Uh, Trump said that were, um, you know, I remember when he talked about Alicia Machado, the Miss Universe, and my son was kind of like just galloping along in the kitchen, and he heard uh, someone say on the podcast that I was listening to, they were like, oh, and he called her Miss Piggy, and my son just like stopped dead in his tracks, and he goes, who said that? <laughs> yeah, And I was like, oh, that was Donald Trump said that about, you know, just past contestant on Miss Universe, and he just goes, that's mean. You're not supposed to say things like that. Yeah. From the <laughs> so mouth like, of babes. Know, they, yeah, they just get the the sort of like, wait, he's allowed to say that? I can't say that in school. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> if my kid said half the stuff that DT said yeah. in school. Um, <laughs> well, I, so I wanted to talk about, like, there's three things I wanted to talk about on this podcast with you. Uh, first is, you know, I am a, I listen to NPR politics. I listen to the politics podcast, like everyone who, I don't think people aren't either like a casual listener. There's no uh -huh. casual listeners. Either you don't listen to it and you don't know it, or you're <laughs> like obsessed and constantly checking the NPR one app. Be like, is there a new episode? Uh -huh. Is there a new episode? Is there a new episode? Um, I'm definitely the latter. Um, oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you're such a, such a strong listener. Yeah. We've definitely found, um, Everybody who listens are there's like tremendous depth of support yeah. for it, um, and it's really heartening. I mean, we go on the road and do these live shows. I was in Atlanta, and people are driven from like Mississippi and Orlando. I was like, why? Because <laughs> well, you know, it's not just the the political analysis. It is like the camaraderie you guys have. Yeah, but the. the so, that was the first thing I want to talk about. No. Yeah. The thing that I wanted to meant to, to ask is you have two kids. They're six and nine, as you yeah. previously stated. It seems like, you know, you're the lead political editor for NPR in like the most tumultuous time. How old are you? Uh-huh. I'm uh, 39. Yeah, I'm 37. Like yeah. that we've kind of been around for. How do you balance, like you said, you're on the road and uh, you record the podcasts all the time. How do you balance being a around dad 
and trying to keep up with the news. Yeah, it's very hard. Um, you know, right now my daughter is watching a video on her iPad and she's calling out for something, probably like water or like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you'll live. Snack, right. And, you know, and I've got to be attentive to that. And then I'm also like in the Slack channel at work right now, currently discussing our homepage and the poll story that I just wrote. So it's Oh, like, yes, the mayor's poll about the bar letter. That's right. Yeah, we <laughs> just uh, published that. So, you know, I have a very good babysitter um, who uh, has been a godsend in this past year, and she's, uh, you know, gets them after school because there's no way that you could actually parent and work and pick up kids at 325. Yeah. So are, you, are you married? Um, I'm separated. So, yeah. um, you know, so in the process of a divorce and, Me too. you know, yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, it's quite the process. You know, yeah. you can walk into a chapel drunk in Las Vegas and get married and they'll hand you a certificate <laughs> where it's legal and like to get divorced is like, you know, years of your life. Yes, you can walk, you can walk in drunk to a chapel and get divorced too. That should be the next... Yeah. Um, well, you know, anyway, but the thing is, it, it's a it's a process. You know, you have to have good support structure. Yeah. Um, I think it's super important that um, you have people at work who get it um, and who are flexible with your time. And that hasn't always been the case in obviously like American uh, corporate culture. I think that's changing because of what you see as necessity for a two parent household income, which Elizabeth uh, Warren talks about. And we'll get to in a sec. Yeah, I mean, I just think that our policies as a country haven't really caught up to the realities of what housing costs are now, what, um, you know, life of, you know, cost of living costs are overall. I mean, but also like I imagine being in journalism, um, you are so responsive to current events and there is this sort of Damocles about like, are you the first one? Are you going to get the scoop? Are you going to be out there? Um, Sure. Yeah, I mean, there are things you just have to, you know, be okay with not always being on top of. I mean, you know, there, there, you, you've got to good enough has got to be good enough sometimes. Give and, me an example. Um, I don't know. Like, I probably could go out more and source with with uh, people on campaigns, or I could go out on the road more to a lot of campaign events, or you know, and you, you kind of just have to be more judicious about picking your spots. You know, um, email and phone helps. You know, I try to keep in contact with my sources uh, that way. But I probably if I were, you know, single and, uh, you, you know, just able to you know, live downtown, I could, you know, probably I'd probably have a you know coffee or lunch or dinner with a source every day or every night. Right. If you're like and a that's just journalistic yeah. Ronin. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just but there's just you can't you can't do that when. Yeah. You, if you want to be a decent parent, you know, <laughs> and none of us is going to be a perfect parent. None of us is going to be, um, you know, perfect at our jobs either. But I think it's striking that balance that is so important because, you know, nobody remembers on their deathbed, um, you know, that nobody regrets on their deathbed having not worked enough. You know? No, <laughs> they although, do, they... <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, that's true. I do always... <laughs> I don't always. Sometimes in my moments of egotism, I think like if there was going to be a New York Times obituary about me, like mm-hmm. you know, what would they say? And sure. sometimes I do wonder if, you know, the fact that I pick well, up my kids and take them to drums, you know, drums and piano 
uh, that's not going to make yeah. the cut. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And, and I think that I, I, I've always sort of been driven by this thing, and I don't know, it, it, you know, but when I was in third grade, there was a prompt that a teacher asked us to write, and they said, how do you know if you're a success in life? And just instinctively, I said, if your kids love you. <laughs> and I, I really do believe that. I mean, you know, you've got to be able to provide for them. You've got to be able to put a roof over their heads. You've got to be able to make sure they're fed and uh, be able to, you know, get the, some of the things that they want out of life, um, have good, rich experiences and, you know, support and all of that. So, you know, you want to, you need a, a job and a career that can effectuate that. And I think it's also really important for kids, especially kids, um, you know, of, I mean, it's a balance, right? But like, it's good for my daughter to see that her mom works yeah. and that she loves what she does and she's good at what she does. Um, and I want her to have good, strong female role models like that to be able to uh, emulate later in life. I also want my son to be able to see that uh, that's what should happen, and I want him, to, him and my daughter to see uh, that a, that there's a father who's that they have a father who's willing to take the time to do the best he can to be with them, to provide for them, to keep them safe, to love them, and give them consistency, um, and that that's possible, and that you have a dad who says he loves you and that he's proud of you, yeah. and you know that's an example. I feel like for my son and for my daughter to see what you what you should be like as a parent. And I hope that I set at least some positive example for that, but also that I do something for my career that when you ask, what do you do? I really believe in the power of journalism and the necessity of taking something complicated and making it understandable for regular people, that that is, it's important for them to see that when you go and try to do something in life, that you try to do something that affects the greater good. And, you know, you don't just do something because you want to make a salary. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a nice segue into the um, the field of 2020 and kind of like how candidates are talking about um, issues pertaining to the family. You know, I've been obviously doing some research through fatherly and just being a dad and seeing life. Um uh -huh how much more difficult it's become to be a working parent and how mm -hmm. so much of the governmental support, which in the earlier uh, parts of the cent earlier parts of the 20th century were there for American families and have continued to develop abroad in America have really sort of atrophied away. And oh, yeah. at the same time and related to that, obviously um, parents are, more and more involved in their children's lives because there's less of a presumption that they will be successful. So you feel like you have to, hmm. you know, take them to classes. You have to do everything you can. I still think that that's too much. And I think that parents' own anxieties sometimes lead to kids not being kids. And kids need to be kids, first and foremost, so that they can be well-adjusted adults and grow up in a way that they had a healthy, healthful you know, upbringing. We don't need to pay a million dollars to get a kid into Yale if they got into Arizona State. Like, it's okay. Arizona State is a good school. Your kid will be fine. <laughs> in yeah. fact, they'll probably be better off because they'll have less student debt. But that's a whole other 
situation. Well, well so it's, I think that it's sort a of a whole other situation, but it, like all of those things combine that there's yeah. less um, because of I well maybe I have this right because of growing income inequality and because of a host of economic reasons. There's less economic stability for families. There's less of a presumption that their kids will be able to increase kind of their their wealth. Yeah, their socioeconomic yeah. standing. And so parents are under intense pressure to help as much as they can, which I think is totally understandable. I'm not talking about like the, yeah, the the um, Felicity Hoffman <laughs> type right. uh, covert bribery or the overt bribery of having buildings named after you, more just like the day-to-day yeah. um, struggle. And I mean, I, I mean, I think if you are already of a certain socioeconomic status, your kid's going to be fine. You know, if you're reading to your kid, they hear far more words than someone of lower socioeconomic status, and that's a huge indicator of how well they do later in life. And, you know, I really, I think sometimes the kind of helicoptering probably winds up being more problematic in the long run for your relationship with your child, because do you want a kid who's so dependent on you to do everything for them that they're constantly calling you and texting you and you're supporting them their entire lives. No, or but I think it, that, I think you know? I think we need to draw a distinction between <laughs> that kind of pa- parenting and just involved parenting because I do think right. there you know one is what you could say healthy and one is what you could say right. neurotic. Um, but I, w- I was going to say is of of the candidate field on the Democratic primary. Um, it seems like the person who's talking the most about that and who has worked the most about that is Elizabeth Warren, who has like uh-huh. a very coherent policy around um, childcare. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a book about the two-income family. But I wonder from your standpoint, seeing the field coalesce, you know, from a, a dad standpoint, everything you just talked to me about in your own life and, you know, and what you know from your professional life as well, like, what do you think the state of those conversations are? Well, you know, I, all right. So there's the Democratic primary, which, you know, Democrats are far more willing than Republicans to do things that, you know, expand government and spend money on various programs to try to solve, you know, big problems. Republicans generally think that. Uh, government is the problem and that the last thing you need is more government doing more things, just generally. However, you have even seen some openness with this White House to, you know, potentially, uh, you know, do something on, uh, you know, family leave and child care and all that. But really, kind of a little bit. Right. But (laughs) like even some of the proposals that are out there, they don't address the real issues that people have for the cost of these things. I mean, I'm just thinking about like Marco Rubio proposing $2,000 tax rebate, um, which was seen as very far, um, you know, out there for Republicans and any of the other plans that were being proposed. And, you know, I think most parents look at their bills and they're like, I don't know, make that like, you know, a thousand a month. Then maybe we're talking about something that can actually make a dent. Um, it's it's a huge difference. I mean, if you think about, you know, mortgage interest and how we're able to deduct that so that you incentivize home buying, but you don't really do that for childcare, 
um, you know, it's it's uh, it. I think it just hasn't caught up to where we are. I mean, you have a little. Yeah, it's Warren. kind of like stayed. You yeah. have family values on the right and the left too, but family values, so called, without any sort of economic extrapolation into like what Support. might that actually yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's it's very difficult, and I think that for parents of a decent socioeconomic status and education, it is difficult but doable, right? And uh, you know, but when you're talking about folks who don't have the means, it's really you're putting kids essentially in an abyss before they even start kindergarten. Um, So it makes it really hard. Um, But when you think about like the Democratic field and Elizabeth Warren, she look, she's somebody who believes that uh, she says firmly, I'm a capitalist. You know, she's like, I'm not a socialist. And but she is proposing radical change. And what that means is, you know, we likened it in the podcast to um, renovating an entire house, like gutting it, right? You don't knock the house down, but you gut it. Yeah. And she believes in stronger and stricter regulations on Wall Street and on corporations and has all these programs in mind for things like child care and leave and things like that. Now, Bernie Sanders also talks about it, but in a different kind of way, because he does note that your taxes are probably going to go up uh, to be able to pay for some of the programs that he wants to implement, whether it's Medicare for All or any of the other, you know, child welfare programs and things like that. More yeah, whereas sort of Warren, Warren says, model. yeah, Warren, yeah. I think, says it's going to come from a millionaire, which I th- she had a, look, dude, she had a good point about like taxing above 50, taxing like 3% above $50 million. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, Oh yeah, that's like she had some stat the other day. I think I heard it on the podcast. So like, I don't know, something like forty-five. It would only affect forty-five families or one hundred forty-five. I'll change this in the post-edit um, families, but like would yield like a trillion dollars, which was mind blowing and um, mind blowing to me. But you yeah. were saying that yeah, she's she is uh, within the capitalist framework, whereas Bernie's a little bit you know left. No, Bernie's like blow it up. Yeah, Bernie is, would do more of a, you know, a Northern European socialist model. You know, you think of like a Norway or something like that. Um, and what his people around him talk about is this happiness quotient. You know, the idea that you want that you want people's pursuit of happiness to be fulfilled. And you know, I guess they could point to the the countries that are happiest around the world and you know, Bhutan. You know, some of these Northern European socialist oh, yeah. <laughs> countries actually do make the list pretty high, yeah. um, you know, but it's sort of like a level of contentment and their expectations aren't that high. So you change sort of the bar when Americans are so aspirational, aspirational about wealth that I think that telling an American that like it's good enough often isn't enough. Yeah. And I think that that's the potential uh, roadblock that he winds up running into because people so want to build wealth and have their kids be better off. They want the possibility, um, even if the possibility is becoming more and more and more remote. They they don't like the idea that it is not going to be as likely. Yeah. Well, and and it depends on for who and how, you yeah. know, because um, when we're talking about factory jobs that have gone overseas, those were the road to middle class. Um, to like a solid middle class life, but if you think about the, 
the kind of homes that people were okay with, let's say, in the 1940s and 50s. Now everybody wants move-in ready, you know, perfect, uh, you know, space. Every kid's got a bathroom. Like, that's not the way our parents and <laughs> A toilet for live. every kid in America. <laughs> Just, it's, I think our expectations for wealth and what wealth is have changed in, in the past two generations. When you look at the field, I don't think there's that many dads running. Bernie's well, a dad, but Bernie, a granddad. Yeah. He's like a granddad. Well, Beto O'Rourke got into a little bit of controversy this past week. Does uh, Beto have a his, kid? He does. In fact, he got into he got into some controversy because he talked about how he was trying to kind of hat tip to his wife Ugh. and say that she's back home in El Paso, basically raising the kids, and while he's campaigning, which just triggered an entire backlash. Yeah, um, because he's essentially acknowledging that um, he's off running a campaign while his wife is essentially parentally subsidizing his run. But the reality is that's the way it's always been for male candidates. Yeah. I just, I just thought, I thought, I thought Beto didn't have a kid because the idea of being a dad and going on a vision quest is like, those are wildly (laughs) incompatible. Listen, I thought the same thing when I saw his medium post, I was like, how do you have time for this? Don't you have like responsibilities? Like, you know, you're a dad. Um, Why don't you have but, a snack you know, today at school? Oh, well, dad's on a vision quest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I Look, everybody's relationship is different, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I'm certainly not going to dictate to anyone how their relationship should go. Um, but um, Also, what I is he teaching his kids to stand on restaurant tables? That's not cool. That's not good manners. <laughs> well, I hope he's asking permission first. Yeah. Um, okay, I so... Think Pete, yeah, Mayor Pete, think, yeah, mm-hmm. no kids, I don't think. No kids. Although, I'm a fan. Uh, who else? Yeah. There's that dude out in Washington who cares about climate change. Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee. He I'm probably not sure has, if he has kids. I'm not sure if he has children. Jo- uh, John Hickenlooper. Kids. Uh, I think so. Seems um, like it. Yes, Jay Booker. Has, I'm Googling this. Jay Inslee has three sons, Joe, Jack, and Connor. Um, okay, names. You know, what's that? Those names are okay. I'd vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> Just based on that. Based on their um, kids' names. Yeah, I mean, I think Cory Booker doesn't. Um, Cory Booker does not because Cory Booker is also not married, not in a. He's in a relationship with Rosario Dawson. They Which say totally blew my mind when I heard it and changed one hundred percent my per, my my view of him. But come oh. on. In a positive way? Or? Yes, in like a, oh, oh, hey, what's up, Corey? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's a handful of people with children in the race. I mean, uh, you know, women in the race, too, being moms who have yeah. to deal with, uh, you know, sort of not even, no one even particularly caring that they're mothers. It's just sort of an expectation with women and moms that they can do it all or that they do it all and they can't complain. I mean, one of the things that I always find kind of annoying is, um, you know, whenever uh, I see women in an airport having a hard time with kids, you, you tend to see people sort of look at them like, oh, why aren't you a good mother? Mm-hmm. And if I'm in the airport with, you know, and I've got my kids, one in my arm or one pulling at me, 
inevitably people are like smirking and smiling like, oh, isn't that cute? Yes. You know, and <laughs> you're, you're from Queens, right? Yeah. So you know that the, the New York equivalent of that is a subway dad where you walk uh-huh. into the subway with two kids and immediately someone gets up and, oh, good job, dad. Meanwhile, right. like, you know, a mom walks in with two kids and it's just like, get those brats out of here. No, it's totally ridiculous. The bar is so much higher for women. Um, and I think that that's still the case on campaigns. I'll be right back after a quick message with more from Dominic Montanaro. Gillibrand said something I heard the other day, which I thought was really um, wonderful, talking about her kid and why she, I guess she was early on the on the Al Franken um, expelling it or pressuring yeah, him. Yeah, she's to, largely responsible for pressuring him out of Congress, yeah. And she said that it's because she has a son. I think she she was talking about her son. And, like, she couldn't tell her son, oh, well, you can't do this, but he can. And I thought, uh-huh. you know, I thought yeah. that had a lot of integrity. Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, I think that, well, first of all, Democrats are struggling with trying to figure out how to balance uh, Me Too stuff in their own party. Uh, there have been a couple of examples of it where there's been some different, differing reactions. I mean, you think about uh, Keith Ellison uh, and yeah. some of the accusations against him, and he's still, you know, in his positions um, and was elected after that. Uh, and meanwhile, Democrats are very quick to say that the hint of an allegation against a Republican means that that person should go. And I think that it's an easy attack for Republicans to say, well, what's your standard? Of course, Republicans have to hold themselves to the same standard if that's what they want to do and have the higher ground. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that all of these things make the balance for parents and people running uh, kind of a complicated one. And in this campaign, it's really the first time you've had to see men grapple with the idea of what kind of parent they are. And I think about that Beto O'Rourke moment where he was asked about or where he talked about his wife being home with the kids. And it's, you know, it was just always the expectation before that, uh, you know, guys running for president, maybe he's got kids and his wife's at home with them. Yeah. Uh, that also came on the heels of some weird. Well, didn't he have some, like the the silent wife in the? Was she next to him in that in that campaign video? Yes, correct. And then they put out another video where he starts talking to her, and she oh and finally gosh. hear from her. <laughs> oh my god! So I think that there's a big balancing act that's having to go on uh, with all these male candidates and trying to figure out what the right uh, tone, approach, and all of that is. Um. The other thing I wanted to, to to talk about is that I've noticed, you know, throughout the Trump presidency, I can't remember another time when a father and child dynamics has been so present in the White House with Ivanka uh, and Don Jr. and Eric. Yeah. You know, like we're well, watching. Kids. Yeah. And we're watching father and yeah. son dynamics. Uh, this is me editorializing. So you can remain silent uh-huh. if you if you wish um it's like watching criminality move from an from a a father to a son within the family and seeing and you know me as a dad i'm thinking well if i'm involved in some bad shit do i want to have my kid involved in it you know like it it really 
watching how much Don Jr. was involved in his dad's campaign, it just opens up this whole sort of like Shakespearean world of father-son dynamics, which I've never yeah. experienced before. Well, putting aside, you know, the, the alleged criminality of criminality, <laughs> yes. um, the fact that you know, they run much of his organization is obviously why you have Ivanka Trump, Donald Jr., Eric involved in, you know, being spokespeople for their father, um, as well as being part of the campaign as a bleed over, given that they don't really trust that many people like political professionals outside of their world. And probably with good reason, because nobody would take him seriously yeah. in that professional world. So, you know, they've always felt embattled. Um, as a New Yorker, I've certainly watched that. Um, and, you know, that's part of it. I mean, Ivanka was on Celebrity Apprentice as one of the judges from time to time. And, you know, that's just the way they are. And it is definitely interesting because you don't you haven't had this in a White House. Um, you know, you've had wives who have been have taken a principal role in a husband's administration like Hillary Clinton when she was first lady to Bill Clinton. But you haven't really had children who have taken on kind of that kind of role. One, because you haven't had presidents who have been this old, number one, right. where you've got a, adult children who can kind of weigh in. I mean, usually you might hear from them later on when the president has left the White House. And President Trump, certainly somebody who doesn't show any signs of uh, stepping aside or not running for re-election. He's got lots of energy. He did that two-hour speech at CPAC. He's it's all the another rally. Yeah, I mean, does another rally last night? So this is this is what he's he's doing. But I think given you know he's seventy-two years old, you know, and you've got adult kids that, who've been involved in his businesses. Well, I feel like they're going to be there when I watch Don Jr. I feel like so, and especially Eric, who's like a butt of a lot of jokes. But it's just like. Part of me feels so much emotion for him because he's like, I just want to be loved by my dad. You know, like just as much as like Donald Trump wanted to be loved by his dad, Don Jr. <laughs> wants to be loved by his dad. And you watch it play out and you like watch that he was trying to make his dad proud and yeah. got wrapped well, up in like some gnarly, you know, bar letter well, stuff. Everybody, everybody, wants, every son wants the father son dynamic is always. Um, you know, kind of at the heart of everything that I think dads need to think about because of, you know, that first psychiatrist or psychologist question when you're having issues in life will be like, so what's your relationship like with your father? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he and was the president of the United whole... States, current inmate. In... <laughs> um, well, okay. Yeah. Domenico, you should probably go get your daughter that water she's been asking for. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. It's been a blast. You're so welcome. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of the Fatherly Podcast. This episode was produced by me, Joshua David Stein, and Anthony Roman. Andrew Berman is our executive producer. We recorded at Argo Studios. Look, if you like this podcast, rate it and review it. If you don't like this podcast, don't rate it, don't review it. And hopefully, I'll convince you next week that what we're doing here is really worthwhile.